Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dennis Dunaway of Alice Cooper. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, the rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain here, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. That means home, yes. Okay, here's the news. Uh, Well, okay, it's not new, uh, but once again, I do want to let you all know that the Pantheon rock and roll shows that are now in their own separate feeds. Uh, For those of you looking to listen just to a particular show or set of shows, uh, you know, um, a la carte uh, or like a buffet for the liking. Uh, So go look for your favorite show and please subscribe, rate and review. Of course, uh, like um, Monsieur Creosote from uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, you can still gorge yourself, silly, in all the rock and roll yumminess found in our old big pipe stream, our audio magazine. Uh, The choice is yours now. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our pantheon of rock and roll. Find them all at pantheonpodcasts.com. And of course, come back here uh, for the weekly news. Okay, episode 17, called Bookends, was released, and uh, like I said, it was a double episode coming in at almost two hours of rock and roll knowledge. We hope you all got a chance to listen, and if not, you know where to go and get it, right? Uh, You can get it uh, in the big feed, or you can get it by its own self now, yes. So we are very quickly getting to the end of the 1960s in our retelling of the entire history of rock and roll, or more accurately, the music of the latter half of the 20th century and the culture that birthed it. This time, we have taken you to uh, New York, mostly, uh, in the late 1960s, and discuss a couple of uh, very different acts, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and the Velvet Underground. We had a few side trips uh, as we barrel towards the end of the decade, and uh, we bring in uh, some early punk acts like the MC5 and the Stooges out of Detroit. So go and listen to uh, Bookends, and please let us know what you think. There's a lot of effort that's put into that show. Uh, It takes us three to six months. I think this one took us even a little more than six months to get done. We promise (laughs) it won't be like that in the next one, or at least I say that every time. Um, Hopefully it won't be. We are working diligently on episode 18 right now. So um, 
We just have a few more episodes to tell the story. I think there's two, uh, and that's it. And even the second one, we're definitely in 1970. So uh, it's getting close. And we're going to end that and call our first uh, 19 episodes, or what should be 19 episodes, as Volume 1. Um, so keep that uh, in your pocket. That's going to be interesting because we're starting to really feel that there is a difference in uh, the creation of rock and roll, the rise of rock and roll, and then the maturity of rock and roll, and then where it goes from there. So um, that's where volume two will really come in. In the last few weeks, there uh, is a new rock and roll librarian about Aretha Franklin, a new real rock on the anti-rock low-budget movie Hell's Bells, a new art of rock featuring renowned mastering engineer Pete Dell. Uh, this week, uh, we will have Miss Pamela DeBar sit down with old lover and longtime friend Nick St. Nicholas from Steppenwolf. And of course, our muses will have a new episode out. Uh, I think every other week they are on the network. And I think they're going to weekly, just like uh, Deeper Digs in Rock uh, here. So keep an eye out uh, for that. So check out all of that. And like I said, uh, in the big pipe uh, or uh, in their individual feeds. One last news item. Uh, we are giving away some books uh, from many of the authors we've spoken to on this show, uh, on Rock and Roll Librarian, uh, The Muses, and even a few from research on the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. All you need to do to enter is to sign up to our mailing list at pantheonpodcast.com. Look up at the top, click on the sign up and win a book button. Okay, diggers. Uh, that is the housekeeping this week. So why don't we get to the show and meet our special guest? You know, it's comes around here. I did the bad midnight. She make her feel so good. She make her feel all right. And her name is G. Today, we get the chance to discuss Ryan H. Walsh's amazing new book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Yes, it is in some ways a discussion of Van Morrison's early masterpiece, uh, but more importantly, it is a treatise on the city of Boston where Van and then-muse Janet Planet fled when his then-manager, Burt Burns, died suddenly and the mob assumed control of Van's recording contract. Uh, Van the Man was terrified of the mob's management skills uh, to get him to record, and so he fled to Boston to hide out. While there, he finds a group of young musicians who don't really know who he is, and over a summer fleshes out the tunes that would become Astral Weeks. Ryan treats this like a CSI investigation and musical love letter to his own hometown, reminding the reader, as perhaps it is more important to late 60s counterculture than it gets credit for. He tries to follow the few clues left by Morrison and finds several names that were connected to the Irish singer, like Peter Wolf of uh, Jake Giles fame, or, or those just tangentially in the swirling mix of the community Van hid out in, like Timothy Leary or musician cult leader Mel Lyman, who pre previous guest uh, Maria Muldor was in a band with. It's a great read and one I couldn't put down. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ryan H. Walsh. 
If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the ditch and the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Ryan H. Walsh. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? You know, uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I think you're on one end of the Americas, and I am on the other end of Americas. You're you're in Boston, right? That's right. Yeah. So now, the, the book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, it's Boston, 1968, Van Morrison. So there's a lot to unpack. First, let's establish that you are a native of Boston, their Beantown, and uh, you are a musician. Uh, and I think this is your first book, right? That's totally correct. Yeah. Yeah. But you've written articles uh, in various periodicals and so on. So just tell us a little bit about you. I know, I know you're in the band Hallelujah, The Hills, and uh, you still are, are out there as a working musician and, uh, and as a writer. So t- tell us a little bit about yourself besides that. Sure. Well, like you said, I uh, born and raised here in Boston and uh, went to BU for uh, film, wrote a lot of screenplays there, but always loved music. Uh, and right out of college, I yeah, um, music stopped. and film they just seem to go yeah. together, right? You know, I, I know so many filmmakers that are musicians and musicians that are filmmakers, and uh, vice versa. Yeah, so yeah, two sides of the same coin. Sometimes they appear in the same world, but it was really hard to make a film, <laughs> like to get a bunch of people together and pay them and create a film. But it was far, far easier for me to you know start making music right away as a young person in my early twenties. And what happened at the same time was that I went through a really bad personal heartbreak, romantic heartbreak, and that's precisely the time that I found the album Astral Weeks in a record store around here. Yeah, I was going to ask you, were you always a Van Morrison fan? or No. Or, no. So this all stems from a heartbreak that occurs. Well, yeah, I was trying to fill that hole in my heart with records. That was my best guess for how to fix it. It was at that age where you don't yeah, know. Yeah, we you're... always do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't know you're ever going to get over it. So I was, uh, <laughs> right. my, and my older brothers had kind of hipped a lot of bands to me, but Van Morrison wasn't on the menu. So when I saw that album title and the record cover in the store, I said, what the hell does this sound like? Because it didn't look like other Van Morrison records. And, um, I bought it, started listening to it, and immediately I fell in love with it. It was like almost like medicine. It just made me feel better. Mm-hmm. And so I kept listening to it. And then, you know, you flip over the back sleeve, and there's this poem signed by Van Morrison. And in that poem, he references Cambridge, Hyannis, and Cape Cod, which are here. You know, I know those places well. But, you know, it made so little sense to me. I thought, well, those must also be places in Ireland because... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Belfast boy. Right, right. Right, right. I've never heard a goddamn thing about Van Morrison living in Boston. But it did pique my interest, especially after I looked at a map of Ireland and noticed those places weren't there as well. So I just started, you know, kind of researching it and there was so little on it. But soon I found that he did live here right before he made Astro Weeks and that Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles Band was his friend here and possibly made this recording of him live. And to me, there was always like this missing link between what you hear on the radio-friendly pop hit of Brown Eyed Girl and then, you know, the otherworldly thing going on in Astral Weeks. 
So I kind of just for a personal mission to figure out that link. And for years, it was just casual Google searches, reading the best biographies, most of which didn't have much info on it. Really? They don't spend much time on uh, on the creation of Astral Weeks. Well, they do, but they skim over that nine months in Boston. The Boston period. Where, uh, wow. Really? Yeah. And then just you know, get to New York and the recording and the musicians that were on it and uh, and all that. Yeah. Let's face it. It's a very interesting album. Uh, not successful at its release. Uh, it's something that grew and there's a certain mythology to it. And we'll get into that. Uh, so that is how you came to find Van Morrison is literally through the uh, the album. And you just happened to pick it up because of the, the cover looked interesting and you put it on and magic occurred, huh? I would describe it pretty much like that yeah <laughs> did it cure the heartbreak it helped it, it helped really yeah it's helped. good medicine good medicine yeah definitely definitely yeah so, yeah i understand that your wife impressed you by i think playing that uh on your first date or something like that well yeah yeah it was this weird thing you know everyone kind of got to know all oh, the ryan astral weeks means a lot to him everyone knew you know i just couldn't stop talking about this thing so when i went out on a first date uh with marissa at the end of the date she put that record on and I was so taken aback. I was like, who told you to put that on? And no one had. So I just took it to be a really good sign. Uh, beautiful sign. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, yes, we're married. Wow. And all because of Van Morrison and Astro Weeks. Look at that. Oh yeah. Well, I'm not going to give them full credit. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> uh, certainly a piece. Certainly a piece. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So so 1968. Uh, let's get the diggers up to speed on the seminal year of horrors. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy are assassinated. Tet Offensive in Vietnam. In fact, I think Vietnam is at its peak in 1968. Uh, more Americans are killed that year than uh, than any other in the history of the war. Uh, the Prague Spring occurs. Uh, the backlash from the communists. Hell, even Andy Warhol is shot in 1968. It wasn't a good year. Uh, it was kind of like the turning of the tide from the summer of love of 67, right? Yeah, it was almost like a mirror image of that previous year. And it seemed like in America, especially that just the world was hell bent on ripping itself apart. And people were truly freaked out. And to me, that explained a lot of the behavior that I describe in the book. People are acting crazy because the world seems literally crazy. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, not too dissimilar from where we're at today, uh, you know, a battle for the soul of America. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I can tell you that uh, the good guys didn't win on that last one. I'm not quite sure how it's going to turn out this time. But, uh, you know, by November, uh, I believe Richard Nixon is elected president. That's how I begin the epilogue of the book. I say, well, while a record plant pressed Astro Weeks to vinyl. Richard Nixon was elected president. <laughs> yeah, and the conservative backlash uh, had begun in earnest, uh, of which, you know, let's face it, we're still living in a uh, conservative-dominant political philosophy world uh, today. So, and, and now it's completely off the rails. I mean, you'd probably agree with me there, and I don't want to go too deep into politics. but Let's do uh, it. Oh, let's <laughs> let's, let's, uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of similarities to 1968, right? You know, in fact, when I was researching and writing the book, oftentimes, I would just forward a current article to my editor and say, like, this is eerie, right? Like, you know, I mean, when you're looking for it, you find connections everywhere. Oh, That's yeah, yeah. But 
I did see sort of a cyclical thing where it seemed like, okay, 50 years later, it seems like some of these loops are repeating. Yeah. Um, uh, my hope is just that it's the opposite. It's a mirror of, of 68. Uh, let's face it, by 68, uh, you know, you'd run through a uh, dominant a liberal political uh, philosophy uh, for the last almost 40 years, uh, since 1933. And race has a lot to do with it. Uh, by 65, uh, with the uh, Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act, you know, the Southern strategy had come into play. Uh, the parties flip geographically over the next 20 years where the solid South was blue and Democratic. It, it is now and has been uh, red and conservative. And um, that's kind of that's where that flip begins to occur is about 1968 and uh here we are in 2019 now and uh it, it almost looks eerily like we're, we're in that death grip and uh, i'm not quite sure which side's gonna win but uh you know we are at uh, that moment in history where things are shifting things are changing and i don't know where it's gonna go i don't know. do you have an answer Yes, let me be very precise. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Damn, um, I was you know, really hoping that you would have it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like we're we're doing this interview right now during a week that probably you know, luckily yeah. we we live a lot longer. But uh, you know, our kids or grandkids might ask us about what what was it like that week when the Mueller report came out and realized that wasn't gonna it wasn't uh, gonna save us. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it's you know, not the Mueller report. It's well, the Barr report. But we'll see. You know, these things don't normally happen in days. It happens at a glacial pace that is hard to notice as you're living through it. It's not till afterwards. I'm sure, like uh, myself, you've talked to lots of people who, you know, were in the thick of it in 68, and uh, they thought they were going to win. They thought that the world was going to change and, you know, this new direction, this giant generational shift, uh, these baby boomers were going to change everything. And some people have said, uh, you know, it seemed like it was going to go one way and it went the exact opposite way. So uh, we, we don't know where we're at right now. So who knows? Maybe some they'll tune into uh, this episode exactly and, look right. and go, hey, look at these two guys talking about what was this crazy thing that just destroyed the world or turned it into this great thing that they didn't know about. So, <laughs> What a cool interview they recorded right before they were jailed for being dissenters against... <laughs> before they were yeah, yeah, put up against the wall, right? All right, uh, all right, all right. Boston, Boston, okay. So... Obviously, California with the L.A. and San Francisco right. music scenes are, are making hits and uh, beginning to respond to the British invasion in 68. But certainly by then it's in full swing. Uh, uh, of course, there's always New York and the, the music scene there. But what about Boston and, and, and this secret history of 1968? Well, here's something I, I realized that we I, I joke around that by the time you're 30, you've accidentally seen a dozen documentaries about the yeah, 60s they, yeah, without that's, even that's trying. My point. <laughs> it just happens. And what I noticed was none of them ever mentioned Boston. So when I started digging and, and found stories that were just as interesting, maybe not as victorious, but just as interesting here in Boston, it really blew my mind. And as far as the music scene here, um, you know, the folk revival had a big, um, a big part to play. Uh, the Cambridge scene had a big part to play in that. And then 
Yeah, we will. We will talk about Jim Quiskin's jug band. Uh, oh, sure. Because, you know, that's something uh, that's out there. And what you don't know, but the diggers will know, is that uh, I interviewed Maria Muldor a couple of weeks ago, and that episode uh, has just come out. So and, and she was a part of that, which I, I, I didn't put the whole thing together until reading your book. And I almost I, damn, I wish I'd read your book before I interviewed her. Yeah, because there's definitely uh, she's got some interesting. There's, yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There's a there's a couple of characters I would have asked her about. Definitely, definitely. So, uh, but in '68, what the interesting thing that happens in the Boston music scene is, you know, like you mentioned, the San Francisco sound was a real thing, yeah. and it made a lot of record labels rich. Yeah, and L.A. too. L.A. too. I mean, L.A.'s got yeah. its own thing down there. Uh, you know, the Doors are big. Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, uh, even the Beach Boys are still happening. Uh, you know, and of course San Francisco. Everybody knows, you know, it's Jefferson Airplane, The Dead, Quicksilver Messenger, that whole kind of opposite of L.A. Uh, in a lot of ways. L.A. is quite professional. And this is, uh, you know, hippie uh, DIY and all of that. Right. And the, the important distinction about those scenes is that, the, is that they were organic, real yes. music yes. scenes. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. So, you know, what happened was record executives just start staring at a map thinking, well, we just got to pick a different city and get rich again. And a, <laughs> is that, a gentleman, right. that That's what they thought. And a gentleman <laughs> named Alan Lorber picked Boston because of the huge college yeah, population. Well, one would think, I don't disagree with, you know, with the concept. Solid premise. Uh, right. But he, what, what he does is he picks three bands that don't know each other that are brand new and records a debut album with all of them. And then announces in a full center spread ad in Billboard uh, this thing called the Sound Heard Around the World, the Boston Sound. And it's this huge marketing campaign <laughs> to invent a sound and push these bands. Right. And uh, it's, I think it's chapter three or four in the book, but it's it just details this debacle where it's uh, it's a shame because the kids in the band were earnest, you know, had rock and roll dreams and were talented. But it's the first time kids kind of smelled a rat. Like, what, what am I being sold here? Is, is this really an organic scene? You know, yeah, that- so no, no underground to, to come from uh, where they would have uh, developed their chops. A following uh, had been uh, a little bit more savvy to the uh, guys with the money and, you know, had a philosophy to, that they were pursuing, right? That's right. Yeah, it was just they went about it wrong. And that whole chapter just kind of to set the scene against what was waiting for him when Van Morrison arrived here in early 68. Yeah. So Van the Man Morrison, give us the backstory of our hero from Belfast. How does Ivan become Van, and then how does he get to Boston in 68? Well, uh, when he was still in the great band Them. Yeah, that is a great band. Fantastic. And they worked with producers. Talk about Maximum R&B. I know, right? I mean, just, (laughs) yeah, fantastic. But they worked with an American producer-songwriter named Burt Burns in the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. And after them dissolves, Burt starts to work with Van Morrison. Because let's face it, he is the genius of the band. Yeah. Yeah, Voice is, uh, his phrasing, uh, you know, highly, highly unique and original. Yeah, that voice is just, it's just incomparable. So they cut a single of Brown Eyed Girl, and he sends him back to Belfast and says, if this is a radio hit, I'll bring you back. And by then, Van had already met a a woman from San Francisco named Janet. He nicknamed her Janet Planet, and they they were in love. And Janet Rigsby, right? That's right. 
And so their future romance literally depended on the radio success of a hit pop song. And uh, it did chart. Was it's a rather, rather romantic. You got you got to give it up uh, for that. That's, uh, you know, luckily it turns out good. Exactly. It was I find it really quite a story that, you know, their love hinged on that song. So Burt Burns flew Morrison uh, back to New York and they started to work again together some more but morrison wasn't seeing any money from brown eyed girl come in and he was poor so he constantly was calling the burns household getting into arguments with bert about money and when bert unexpectedly died of a heart attack in late 67 his widow wasn't shy about blaming some of it on van morrison and these arguments they were having and there was there was another problem that bert burns had become friendly with some mobsters in the mid-60s and when he died, suddenly the main people in charge of Bang Records, this record label, are mobsters. So a guy named Carmine Wassel Denoya was kind of in charge of Van Morrison, and he was scaring <laughs> he was scaring the crap out of Van and Janet. Yeah, these were real connected guys, low low level connected guys, but they were the real deal, right? Right. Anyway, you know, Wassel was one of the first people I interviewed, and I found his name in the phone book and cold called him. And when he answered the phone, hello, City Morgue, I knew I got the right guy. Um, really? I went to his apartment in uh, Manhattan. He's still, oh, he's still alive. He is no longer, but he was when I started this. Uh-huh. And this was for the original magazine piece. And so uh, Wassel was, you know, he was he was kind of proud of everything he had done. And that included smashing a guitar over Van's head when he was out of line one night. Well, as you put in the book, it sounds like our friend from Belfast was was drinking heavily, which was the norm, and uh, decided to get into it with, uh, you know, a capo. Uh, probably not a good idea, huh? Not a good idea. And, and Van and Janet were terrified. And then a manager reached out from Boston and said, I can get you work here. And Zoom, suddenly they have an address in Cambridge, Mass, right next to Boston on Green Street. So that it was to escape the mob that... Uh, yeah. Yeah. He ends up there. And so he moves to Boston with, with Janet Rigsby, Janet, now Janet Planet, as he uh, liked to call her. Uh, and he begins to kind of look for gigs, I guess, uh, there uh, in town, right? Right. And before that, he needs to find a band. So for some reason, um, he calls himself his band, the Van Morrison Controversy, while he's in Boston. It's the only time he uses that weird band name. Hmm. And he basically goes through three distinct lineups of the Van Morrison controversy. And basically, it's Van and a bunch of teenagers in each iteration. And, uh, you know, Boston kids and uh, suddenly, you know, their band leader is this hard drinking, um, sometimes grumpy guy from Belfast. Mumbler. (laughs) Mumbler. And some of them, you know, don't even realize at first that he's the guy who actually wrote Brown Eyed Girl. There was no red carpet rolled out for Van in Boston. Yeah. Except for Peter Wolf, who knew Gloria, knew them, and knew how important this guy was. Yeah. Now Peter's a, a DJ uh, at the time, and and has his own band uh, playing around Boston. Not the Jay Giles band, but an earlier incarnation, right? Well, at that that time, he was in a band called the Hallucinations, and he was one of the first DJs on WBCN. And he and Van hit it off. And Van used to come to his overnight shifts at the station. They'd play records all night. And Peter let uh, Van use his telephone because Van and Janet did not have one. So Van could make his business and get his gigs and uh, and all of that. I think the Peter Wolf uh, 
portion plays a big in your detective work here uh, as well, because as the discovery of Astral Weeks uh, and the poem on the back uh, said to you that, hey, this happens in Boston in some way, there are these tapes uh, that Peter has of Van working out these songs uh, when he's in Boston, right? Exactly. There was a, a club called the Catacombs on Boylston Street, and it turned out that, um, you know, all summer long they were gigging and sounding a lot like Brown Eyed Girl, electric pop, rock band, gigging yeah. all over New England. And then as his guitarist, John Sheldon here, described to me, one day Van comes into practice and he says he had a dream the night before that there were no more electric instruments in the world and that they were going to go all acoustic. And late summer, they're deep into this new acoustic sound. And that's when Peter Wolf records a live set of what is then just a trio, uh, Van on guitar and vocals, John Payne on flute and Tom Kilbanya on upright bass. And so, you know, the existence of this tape was, uh, immediately the holy grail of the story. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, you know, I, I had my one shot with Peter Wolf to interview him and ask him about it. And uh, you can read that early in the book. But basically, um, you know, he points out the tape boxes on his shelves right to me. And I can't believe I'm looking at them. And I said, you know, would you ever let me hear these? And he said, yeah, if we get them properly digitally transferred, sure. And then uh, Peter Wolf never talked to me again. <laughs> so it was the weirdest thing. So I had to figure out another way to maybe find these tapes. Did you end up finding the tapes? Um, if your listeners don't want a spoiler, I'd say fast forward 30 seconds. But yeah, I mean, yes, the end of the book, the tapes kind of weirdly fall into my lap and they're amazing and they sound like Astral Weeks without the strings. And one of the great honors of my life was driving around and playing them for the first time they'd heard it in 50 years to the other two Boston musicians. Yeah. Now, John ends up on the proper album, Astral Weeks, but Tom, the bass player, does not. So for him, the tapes meant a lot, you know, because he kind of, you know, didn't get the credit he deserved. So let's talk about Van's dream of going acoustic uh, and a world without electric instruments. And, and I, I want to bring up a character uh, that kind of begins in the prologue, <laughs> a very interesting character that I didn't know much about and led me to look at a bunch of things on the Internet. And I probably will for weeks now. Thank you very much. And that's Mel Lyman, a harmonica player at the time, part of the Jim Queskin band uh, with uh, Jeff and Maria Muldor in it, uh, Maria uh, D'Amato at the time. And then this guy turns into a cult leader. So tell us about him and how he kind of had the same sort of dream that Van does about no electric instruments. Sure. Well, when I started to flesh out the original Astro Weeks magazine article into what would be a book, a full book, I was looking for kind of a counterpart person to tell, you know, the other part of the story. And I came upon, you know, Mel Lyman, this kind of famous folky who would you know, he'd been on The Tonight Show with the Queskin Band, and he stormed the stage after Dylan went electric to play a 10-minute harmonica dirge for the death of folk music. And, uh, <laughs> and he was, you know, he was respected and well-liked in that folk circle. Pete Seeger must have kissed his feet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure they got along, you know. Uh, within a year or so of that folk festival, Lyman started um, kind of moving into these dilapidated houses in Roxbury, in a part of Boston and he started telling people he was God and people started to follow him and move up there. 
and they started an underground newspaper that a lot of it was dedicated to kind of praising Mel. Yeah, didn't you didn't you write a book and uh, it's called Autobiography of a Savior? Is that right? Of a world savior. Oh, okay. Let's <laughs> let's make it as yes. grandiose as possible. Yes, of a world savior. Okay, all right. And uh, this this was kind of like a sort of an occultish, uh, astrological, new agey sort of thing. Right. They, right. they did make a lot of decisions based on astrology, and the you know the Boston Globe was kind of obsessed with this commune, and they wrote a lot about them in the late sixties. And kind of the one thing that locked me into the story right away was the Globe reporter asked one of the followers, what's your goal as, you know, a commune, as a family? And he said, well, once we really get to know each other, we're going to make the most beautiful music the world has ever known. And I thought, wow, what a crazy, wild, ambitious mission statement for a commune. I need to find out if that came true. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they certainly made a lot of music, but they also, you know, just started brainwashing members with LSD and eventually robbing a bank and things got stranger and stranger until sometime in the 70s, Mel himself just vanished and disappeared. So here I had two kind of people to guide us through this story, Van and Lyman. And I thought they would make good yin and yang counterparts of the story because they were both searching for spirituality through music. They were both on some kind of imprint of Warner Brothers. And when the story begins in 68, Van is a stranger in town. No one knows him. He's down on his luck, up against the wall. And Lyman's infamous. And when the story ends, you know, present day, those roles are completely flipped. And Morrison's one of the most famous songwriters in the world. And Lyman's literally vanished. So I just thought there was a natural story structure that suggested itself based on those two people. Yeah. Now, uh, you're not even sure if the guy's alive or not. Apparently, uh, there is a story that he committed suicide in 1978, but that wasn't even known until the 80s or That's something That's right. Like that. Yeah. Well, the, the author of the Rolling Stone expose about the Lyman family in the early 70s, he was the one who first suggested to me Lyman might have faked his own death. And that's true. For much of the book, I kind of chased down that possibility. I mean, legally, there's no death certificate. So for all intents and purposes, he is a missing person. But, uh, you know, again, spoiler alert, because this is in the end of the book. But uh, finally, an anonymous source who I trusted told me, you know, about that suicide in 78, which I, I do believe is the case. So, you know, it's interesting. I get the cult leader uh, concept and the fear of the commune and all of that, especially after the, the Manson murders of 69, which were uh, horrible and horrendous. But you look at Charlie and, and his background, and to me, it seems inevitable. I don't see that with uh, with Mel Lyman, although it seems like in a lot of the periodicals at the time, they're almost trying to portray him as as if the same thing is going to happen. I, You know, I agree with that assessment. I mean, uh, you know, the Rolling Stone expose, I think one of the headlines or subheadlines is, you know, the East Coast Manson. Yeah, it's kind of a hit piece, right? I mean, I talked a lot to David Felton, the author, and people were tuned up by the possibilities of charismatic leaders and cults uh, leading to a horrific ending after the Manson thing. You know, Queskin is quoted in that Rolling Stone piece saying, you know, Charlie Manson uh, preached peace and love and they killed people. We don't preach peace and love and we haven't killed anyone yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, inadvisable quote. He kind of winced when I asked him about that quote, as I recall. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You look at the times, uh, you, you look what people were fighting against, they were just fighting an, uh, against capitalist greed, uh, you know, excessive consumerism, destruction of the, of the environment. You're trying to uplift, uh, you know, civil rights, uh, the women's movement. Gay rights is coming here at the time. Um, you know, those are all positives. And yet, you know, you're getting hammered by the press and, you know, the establishment uh, of the time. I, I don't see uh, that being so bad. Nothing ever horrendous other than mind control and manipulation came out of the Fort Hill community, right? You know, I have to say brainwashing people through LSD is not a good thing. Yeah, that's unforgivable. And they would kidnap people who wrote, you know, poorly of them and scare the heck out of them. And, you know, runaways would go up there and suddenly be pregnant or part of the family. You know, there are dark elements of the story. It's true, you know, saying it's the East Coast Manson, that was probably unfair. But there was plenty of darkness happening in that story throughout the late 60s and early 70s, for sure. Yeah, and that happens in a lot of places in America. It's like the Moonies, and uh, if you want to go really dark, then uh, you know you get the Jim Jones uh, and and all of that. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's possible. Definitely something to be cautious uh, about. And you know what I found interesting about Lyman, beyond the fact that he's a, a harmonica player that turns into a cult leader, because let's see how often does that happen? Uh, but Lyman gets us to the original Timothy Leary and Richard Albert Harvard experiments with uh, Mr. Hoffman's uh, chemical compounds. Exactly. Yeah. Long before any of the action we're describing, Lyman um, used to bring his friends over to uh, Ramdas. Uh, well, he was known as Richard Albert at the time, uh, Albert's house in Newton, because um, after they got kicked out of Harvard, that's where the experiments continued till they moved to Millbrook in New York. Right. You know, Boston is just ground zero for all that experimentation with LSD and hallucinogenic drugs. I was blown away by that. Yeah, I think you say in the book that one of the first psychologists to uh, get uh, some of the uh, the product out of Sandoz was uh, a Boston uh, psychologist, right? The very, yeah, the very first hit of LSD taken in America ha happened at a uh, hospital in Boston, about a mile from where I'm talking to you. Yeah, then the Army got involved, uh, CIA got involved with uh, MKUltra, and, uh, and then, then they spread that to various uh, universities and uh, tried to see what they could come uh, what could come out of that and then the genie was out of the bottle huh exactly hard to put back in uh, though though plenty of people tried I mean uh, <laughs> there's a chapter that you know I try to condense that history in one chapter but I, I don't know if your listeners yeah. uh, if they want to know all about that there's a great book called acid dreams all about the CIA's uh, use of trying to figure out what LSD was and how to best use it yeah, how to best use it for psychological warfare yeah um there's a, a great book uh by jay stevens called uh, storming heaven that kind of you know uh goes through the entire history of the drug from its invention uh through then timothy leary and, and richard alpert trying to turn it into a um, positive uh, controlled uh, helpful drug, uh, and then that getting out of hand, uh, and then the CIA basically handed it off to you know people like Robert Hunter from The Grateful Dead uh, and um, uh, and Ken Kesey, and uh, and then you know then everybody 
gets starts getting it uh you know and uh and it uh it's you know now out in the world and uh and 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 is even being talked about in uh positive circumstances again after 50 right years after the 50 year la- backlash it's back in the hands of scientists who are actually finding <laughs> hey this in in a very specific controlled way this these things can be very helpful to people it certainly can uh it certainly can uh i'm sure you've had experience with it uh i have had experience with it and uh given the correct set and setting it's a very positive experience personally uh yes <laughs> i'm sorry for putting you on the spot there uh if you if you if you, if you didn't want to relay that information but you know so it's it's night it's 2019 man everybody's doing it you know I mean, come on marijuana is legal now jesus what what's next what's this now what's it called marijuana yeah that marijuana yes yeah yeah so all right so most people know astral weeks didn't shoot out the gate and dominate the music in the latter half of the 1960s it took years to boil into the masterpiece it is accepted as today so how much do you think the mythology influenced the memories of the various characters associated do you mean do you mean by the time I talk to the people yes. involved, yeah. uh, that yeah. they they recast their memory? Well, yeah. no, I would say they didn't because the beautiful thing was, like you said, it took decades for the album to be lionized and become legendary. It was a slow, slow burn. And all of the musicians who were on the actual record, you know, time and time again told me, they knew it at the time or no no we didn't know who the guy was we didn't know this was special i had just cut a commercial for pringles right before going into that session like these guys were this working. Was just another gig right yeah so and to me that kind of makes it almost more astounding you know you think about creating circumstances to capture a masterpiece and you might think about lighting the incense and putting all the candles out and the special rug the fact that this all just crashes together with so much happenstance and and no planning is just mind-boggling to me and it does more for the story the legend than if it was the other way around you know it, it's kind of like the book the book is like the album it, it's sort of a big mystery uh it's put together there's like a through line but at the same time you know each chapter is almost like a vignette in its own right and then there's this big mystery that kind of goes through it as, as you are discovering it and uh, as well as the reader. Was that intentional or was that just a result of, you know, of years of kind of delving into this? Well, I would say there's, there's two answers to that. One, I knew there were two central mysteries that the book would try to figure out. And the way it unfolds is true. It's not retrofitted. I'm figuring it out with the reader because I wrote in chronological order. And, you know, that epilogue, the epilogue where everything unravels literally was like written the last two weeks I was allowed to write. But the idea that the mystery of the book mirrors kind of the mystery of the magic of the album, that was not planned. And that is such a flattering, beautiful thing that a lot of people have told me. And uh, I got to say, that was not consciously intended. But again, I think the world of that sentiment, I mean, that just means a lot to me. Yeah, you kind of captured, uh, you know, the album, whether it was conscious or not. uh, It makes a a great reading companion to the album and vice versa. Uh, So uh, I I tell all my diggers out there, uh, you know, when you go to read this, uh, definitely just throw Astro Weeks on it. And you you have have yourself a wonderful masterpiece there. So so, uh, give me your description of Astro Weeks, the album, 
What does it mean to you? What do you hear? What does it mean or what does it hear? Well, I'll do them separate. I mean, what do I hear? It'd be hard to trace that album to a year if you didn't know it. Because, you know, any album recorded in the late 60s, you're going to hear those backward guitars, the sitars. You know, this album has none of that. The production doesn't date. So that kind of instantly makes it a little timeless. Good point. And then, you know, in the lyrics, in the vocal delivery, I just hear someone who's totally maybe lost but searching. And I mean, who can't relate to that? I mean, <laughs> you spend your whole life, I think, in that mode. I'm a little lost. I'm searching for something. I'm not sure what it is. I think I'm finding it. And uh, I mean, of course, a lot of that is tangled up with love and relationships. And um, so the album to me, it's at the same time like a love letter to the universe and a person. And that's hard to do, to do both at the same time. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. It's a love letter to Janet uh, Rigsby uh, and to just the universe uh, at the same time and maybe how these two things are correlate with each other, huh? I think so. And, you know, when I interviewed Janet, you know, for someone, you know, their relationship ended in the early 70s and she had, you know, plenty of right to be bitter about what happened. But despite any cutting comments she might have had. She just was so um, odd and proud to be part of this beautiful creation and, you know, still speaks so, so fondly about it. But at the same token, she also has the, what I think is one of the best quotes in the book where she said, <laughs> the muse, right? <laughs> being a muse is a terrible job and the pay is lousy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I've spoken to many muses, uh, and uh, you are now a part of history. Uh, you're you're a part of this thing that will go on, and you know as these stories come out, uh, and you know I'm sorry, but I, I can't listen to the song something and not think of Patty Boyd, and yeah. that as the, these stories come out, that that couple them and create a deeper emotional narrative to the original songs, you know, I, I just think that's wonderful. Uh, and to her point, granted, you know, you're not going to get any royalty checks over that, but, um, you know, she may live with the stars uh, forever. So there's, there is that. So <laughs> I got that going for me. <laughs> so why, why do you think there continues to be such an interest in artistic events that occurred 50 years ago? That's a great, great question, because I am resistant to the idea that that was the fertile age for some kind of creativity, pop, rock creativity, and it's never been repeated, never will happen again. I'm resistant to that idea. But I do have to say, you know, when you look at the list of albums that came out in the late 60s, something beautiful was happening. Now, maybe you could argue, well, it was a fairly new form, yeah. you know, not just the structure of a song, but the creation of albums as a whole piece of art uh, the technology for broadcast right. uh and to create cultural relevance and, and resonance uh was fairly new yeah and when you hit that sweet spot of being at the forefront i think it's um not easier but it's i don't know there is something about getting there first for sure um, you know, I, I just uh, and this is a big theme of mine uh, is that, uh, look, the elements of this uh, post-war democratic society being at the apex of civilization, this large group of humans known as the baby boomers coming of age, the technology at the same time uh, coming of age, you know, laid the groundwork for this explosion 
of artistic achievement in music that in real time created a feedback loop with the culture, uh, which had never occurred before. It also becomes the first global art phenomenon in real time. Uh, and rock and roll is still, you know, revered anywhere around the globe, certainly not in the way that it was here 30, 40, 50 years ago, but it's still thought of as uh, something special. And that's why we're talking about it, why you wrote a book about it, and people are still interested in it. I would agree with that, certainly. Yeah. I mean, we just don't, like you mentioned earlier in the interview, you don't know really what's happening at the present moment until you have hindsight. Yeah. And so who knows how we're going to look at the art being created in the last 10 years or what it's going to mean or if people will even remember it in 50 years. We don't have a say about that. And I think that there's there's something really cool about that. Yeah, it's a different story. I'm not willing to comment on uh, the art today on its significance, uh, because to your point, we have to get beyond it to be able to judge it. But what I can say is that given the fragmentation that exists, uh, and, and let's just focus on music, uh, you know, it's it's going to be hard to duplicate this monolithic uh, first of all, you had a monolithic culture that, you know, could jump in, you know, have a water cooler moment. And I just I just don't see that happening, uh, given the varied interests and subsets and subcultures that uh, exist in the new 21st century. The You know, that's a product of the industrial age, and we don't live in that age anymore. We live in the cyber age. True, but I would say, you know, absent a monoculture, what you get is a lot of niche cultures. Yeah. And what I would bet on and what we'll see is that each of those niche cultures are going to generate their own interesting stories that, you know, hopefully it won't require the whole world's audience attention on something at once to make for interesting stories. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? It makes sense. And I'm going to give you a lifeline here on that. So like Astral Weeks, you know, Astral Weeks was not thought of as a success when it came out in 1968. Uh, It was uh, come and gone. It wasn't until decades later that people were able to look back and go, ah, look at that. That was a genius and raised it to its position in the uh, the zeitgeist of the story of that music, uh, which didn't happen at the time. And the same thing could be happening today. That's you said it better than I could, literally. (laughs) <laughs> so let me let me ask it. Let's go back to Peter Wolf for a second, because I got a question I got to ask about that. So you sure. got to sit with Peter Wolf. And I, I love the story of how, you know, it's, it's again, almost out of a detective novel to, to get to him. <laughs> right, right. You, you were invited into his home and uh, he showed you the tapes and we we know a little bit about. Um, but before you got there. Uh, there was these hurdles that you had to, to pass. And the one I want to know is you were asked by Peter on the phone certain questions about Van Morrison. It was a gut check to see if you were worthy of his time. Um, what were the questions that he asked? Well, that's going back some years. So what we're talking about here is <laughs> Wolf had already agreed to talk with me. But then like the night of the interview, like all these strange hesitations and second guessing occurred. And one of them was him calling me directly and kind of interviewing me about what I knew about the Van Morrison Astral Week story. You know, and I think he, w- I think he was asking about if I knew about Peter, Janet's son that lived with them on Green Street. And I think he was asking if I knew who the engineer of Astral Weeks was, which was a tough one because Brooks Arthur is, uh, was not listed 
in the credits of the album until the reissue in 2015. But still, you know, stuff like that, just making sure I think that I was worth his time, which, right. you know, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, you wanted to make sure you'd done your homework, right? If there was any other reason for that call, I'd be shocked. <laughs> right, right, right. And, oh, hey, it granted you entrance, uh, you know, into uh, into the inner sanctum. It's true. And, you know, it was so interesting because, uh, you know, he wouldn't let me record. I had to take notes. And then um, once I stopped taking notes and we just started hanging out, he seemed to loosen up a bit. And we spent even more time hanging out and talking and drinking some whiskey. And he even walked me down to his car and then we talked more there. It was a good rapport going on. So to completely lose access to talking after that night was really pretty confusing to me. But, you know, I've heard other things from people, um, similar, you know, journalists or writers that, uh, you know, he's just inherently cagey about uh, particular or, or eccentric. And, you know, hey, he does it his own way and it's worked for him for a long time. So I'm not here to uh, disparage it, but uh, just tell the story of what it, what it did involve. Yeah. I, I, I got to ask another question in, in that story with Peter. As you're walking out, uh, you say that somebody said like Astral Weeks or something like no, that. No, no. Oh, Van the Man. Van the Man. They said Van the Man. And you thought, oh, they must have said something else. And you just played that in your head. And then Peter says, hey, did that guy say Van the Man? Which means it probably really happened. It was the weirdest thing. Like, you know, he's he like I said, he walked me to my car, edge of the garage. And it's a high rise. So there were people leaving the building, going back to their cars. And it was like a party of five or six older folks who, you know, probably had a dinner party or something. And as they passed by, Peter and I heard one of them say Van the Man. And I thought that was so weird, but I did, also did thought... Did they say it to you or just like out of the blue? It was either part of the conversation as they passed or I don't know, but I heard it. But oh. I thought if I mention that, I'm going to sound like a lunatic. Right, right, so, right. So I didn't. And then a minute later, Peter points out to the garage where they are and he goes... Did that guy just say Van the Man? <laughs> Which meant he was doing the same thing. If I say that, the guy's going to think I'm an idiot. All right, right. And right. we both just kind of looked at each other and raised our eyebrows. It was it was quite a moment. Yeah, yeah. Strange coincidences like that followed through the whole process of the book. And I don't know what to say about it or make of it. But That's the universe telling you you're on the right track. You just keep on going, man. A lot of the times that's what I end up thinking, yeah. 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 So like I said at the top, the book is, you know, it's it's not a, a linear explanation or deep dive into the creation of Astral Weeks. It's more a love letter to Boston in 1968. And I, I want to bring up something because I think this really is an amazing, great moment in music history that takes place in Boston in 1968. And that's the night that Martin Luther King was shot and James Brown and newly elected mayor Kevin White kept Boston from burning like many other of the metropolises in, uh, in the country at the time. Uh, exactly right. Late in the book, there's a chapter that, that deals with this. I mean, if you talk about a high stakes concert, <laughs> yeah. you've never heard of anything like this because what happens is, uh, you know, Martin Luther King is assassinated and James Brown is scheduled to play Boston Garden the night after. And Mayor Kevin White has no idea who James Brown is or that if he cancels the show, or let the show happen, there's potential for unrest. And uh, Tom yeah, Atkins... Yeah, he, he was in a tough spot, any way you look at it. And he didn't know it, but someone who worked for him, Tom Atkins, kind of filled him in on, on what exactly the stakes were here. And it's this whole complicated story of, does the show go on or not? And how did we get James Brown to ask for peace? And 
um, you know, there's money involved and, and bargaining over that money. And then the show itself is just, you know, beyond its musical excellence, just has this incredible tension built into it. I've never heard or seen anything like it. And, um, you know, when we talk about 68 as a pivotal year or a um, precarious year, you know, here's a moment when music itself has to be good enough to save people from violence. It's unlike, I haven't encountered many stories like it, that particular story. Well, you, you couldn't ask for uh, anybody better to handle that responsibility than the, the godfather of soul, uh, Mr. Brown. And I believe uh, Kevin White, you know, they appeared on stage together to assure the crowd that, uh, you know, they would be respectful to the situation. But, you know, they expected everybody to, you know, uh, enjoy the concert, reflect on the event that had occurred the day before, uh, but to not resort to violence. Right. Yeah. White. I mean, White was basically promising him more money backstage if he did that, if he if he specifically called for peace. And, you know, White uh, comes out during the introduction and starts to talk to the crowd. And uh, James Brown kind of senses he's talking too squarely, cuts him off, calls him a hip cat, I think. Uh, it's just it, the, the entire show was broadcast that night on WGBH, the local public television channel, as a way to keep people in their homes off the streets. But that's all to say you can watch the entire concert now on YouTube or elsewhere. And there's a great documentary about it as well. And um, if you've never seen or heard that, I just can't tell you to run to it fast enough. I mean, unreal. Yeah, unreal, unreal. So let's get back to Van and his stint in Boston. And again, another weird aside I knew nothing about. You bring up an experimental TV show produced by PBS affiliate WGBH called What's Happening, Mr. Silver. Can you tell the diggers about it and how Morrison and Lyman and others are involved? Well, I tell the story of David Silver in his unexpected psychedelic TV show early in the book because he was one of the first interview subjects who uh, had the crossover between the two big parts of the story, Lyman and Morrison. He had a really interesting run-in with both of them. Of course, that alone wasn't enough for me to include it. The reason it's included is because it was. <laughs> it, it also speaks to the nuttiness of the year that um, you know, straight-laced public television basically just turned the airwaves over to this 20-year-old British kid who who just, with the help of a, a seasoned director, just poured psychedelica into the TV sets uh, all over, not just Boston. It was broadcast in a couple other cities as well. And it's also the story of you know censorship, which is a strong theme throughout the book because, of course, they push it too far. And then the show itself goes on trial, and the trial is an episode itself. Again, it's just um, that kind of high stakes culture moment that I seem to be attracted to. But yes, uh, Silver, Silver just had a birthday the other day. He's a great guy. Interesting interview. Uh, it was a pleasure to tell his story in the book. And uh, so, like, was it that Mel Lyman and Van Morrison kind of like just tuned in and loved the show, or wasn't Lyman actually on the show at one time? There's a whole episode about the Lyman family. Yes. Yeah. And and Silver really wouldn't talk to me about that to this day. He was still kind of irked by the whole experience with them. Um, but I had access to the episode so I could talk all about it. And then, you know, one day a manager brought Morrison to Silver's house, said, uh, I believe Morrison had been a fan of the show. Yeah. And they hung out and had 
had some drinks and talked. And, you know, Silver was one of the few people in Boston at the time who knew. Yeah, who, the, who Van Morrison was. This right. guy's a legend. Oh, yeah, my God. I yeah. can't believe he's a yeah. 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 Wow, that's crazy. So, uh, and by the way, Van Morrison's not the only uh, rocker of that era to escape New York and, and head up there. I know the Velvet Underground spent a lot of time uh, up in Boston and uh, had a favorite place to play up there as well, right? That's right. Yes. I mean, getting to write a book largely about one of my favorite albums was enough to keep me floating for years. But when I realized that one of my favorite bands of all time, the Velvet Underground, had a part in the story too. It, I was just elated. And um, the story basically is that after the Velvet Underground kind of let Andy Warhol go from the position of being their manager and try to make it as just a band. Yeah, the four piece. They got rid of Nico as well at the time. Yeah. Nico goes and they don't want a visual spectacle anymore. No. They just, <laughs> the, you know, the plastic inevitable, right? The exploding plastic inevitable, right? <laughs> precisely. Yeah. So they stopped playing New York pretty much altogether and play Boston like, I forget the number, but it's like upwards of 50, 60 times in three or four years. And most of these shows are at, you know, Boston's first rock palace, which was called the Boston Tea Party. Right. Uh, which uh, you had a lot of big bands come through Boston and play there uh, at the time, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, basically just an old Unitarian meeting hall that just became like the the, the playground for future legends. I mean, Led Zeppelin, The, the Who, uh, The Kinks. I mean, you name it. And one of my favorite parts about telling that Velvet Underground in Boston story is that they are pretty much responsible for Jonathan Richmond. Uh, Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers became enamored with the Velvet Underground and started hanging out like he was their mascot, essentially. Sometimes Jonathan was driving the Velvet Underground around town in his dad's car. <laughs> and it was backstage at the tea party where they kind of showed him first how to uh, start making sounds on a guitar. Well, you know, as Brian Eno uh, has said, uh, the Velvet Underground may not have sold a lot of records, maybe 30,000 at top, but everybody who ever bought that album started a rock and roll band. Exactly. And that, you know, Jonathan and them are kind of ground zero for examples of that story, that anecdote from Eno. Yeah. Right. right. So the book ends with Louis uh, Merenstein taking Van out of Boston and back to New York to record the album, right? Right. This interesting thing happens where after kind of eating dirt all summer here in Boston, suddenly New York producers get wind that, oh, that guy, Van Morrison, he's in Boston. And certain people start to come to scout him out. Yeah, like Joe Smith, right? Joe Smith from Warner Brothers, who signed The Grateful Dead, for instance. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, We've talked about that story before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Lewis comes to Boston and um, auditions Van and at Ace Recording Studio on Boylston. Van sits alone on a stool and plays the title track, Astral Weeks. And the way Lewis described it to me, I was um, lucky enough to talk to Lewis a bunch before he passed away. And he himself started vibrating and almost crying at the beauty of the song and thought, man, this kid is being born again. He doesn't even realize what he's accessing here. I know I have to make this record. And according to Lewis, they left that night for New York. And, you know, one of the stories, rare moments of Van acting really like a compassionate human, he says, you know, I've got these Boston musicians. They should really be on the record. And Lewis said, no, no, I've got this all planned out. It's these Boston jazz pros. I'm bringing them in. Sorry. And uh, Van is pretty gentle when he lets the Boston kids down with that news. But then, you know, it's a whole another thing. 
it's interesting in what could be construed as either incredibly generous or cruel Warner Brothers pays the Boston Kid musicians to come and watch the record get made. Um, whether that's a courtesy or whether it's because maybe they can, um, you know, help. But they, they can learn from it or something. I, I mean, I, yeah, um, I, I could see where, you know, the suits wanted the pros in. You know, there's a lot of money on the line. But as a, as a favor to Van, they, they bring the kids in to kind of, you know, get a taste, get, get to see what it's all about and, uh, and grow from it maybe. The interesting thing to me was that Tom, the Boston bass player, always, you know, said, you know, most of these Astro Week songs, we were, we were playing live. And he's always claimed that he ran down some of his bass lines for uh, Richard Davis in the studio. Mm-hmm. And Richard Davis has always denied that. And so when I finally did hear the catacombs, to hear that same bass line on Cypress Avenue by played by Tom weeks before Davis had even heard of it, that was pretty amazing to me. Oh, so it did happen. It definitely did, in my opinion, yeah. Uh, so, you know, Van has told uh, about several dozen stories of what Astral Weeks means or how it was done or what have you. What what do you make of all that? Right. He, you know, you pick an interview and you get a new opinion on Astral Weeks from, from the man who made it. And I think, you know, a lot of that is, look, over time, it's become known as his definitive masterpiece or the yeah. one that most people agree on. Yeah. From top, top to bottom as a, as a complete work. Uh, right. Yeah. Mm. Right. But it's also the one that he needs to share the most credit with. There's the credit given to all of the New York jazz players. There's Lewis's vision for how the album should be. You know, Lewis was like crafting exactly what songs would be on this. Moondance, for instance, was ready, but he instinctively said it doesn't belong on this record. Even, even though that would have been a certifiable hit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the Boston musicians who helped him get to that acoustic sound and Janet, who's helping him shape his demos into uh you know coherent full songs well hell even the capo that uh, sent him out of new york and off to boston huh even carmine gets a gets a credit <laughs> right so i think for someone like man who seems to want to be known as someone who's a singular force i think on some level it might bother him mm, mm, mm. and then you know to not get much money for it all these years i that's why one of the major reasons he did it live and re-recorded it about 10 years ago at the Hollywood Bowl. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So can you recite the uh, the poem? All right. So this is the complete poem signed by Mary Morrison on the back sleeve of Astral Weeks. I saw you coming from the Cape, way from Hyannisport all the way. When I got back, it was like a dream come true. I saw you coming from Cambridgeport with my poetry and jazz. Knew you had the blues, saw you coming from across the river, told you on the banks of the river, carried you across, loved you then and there, and now like a sheep, I close my eyes and sleep, for love comes flowing streams of consciousness, soft like snow, to and fro. Let us go there together, darling, way from the river to here and now, and carry it with a smile, bumper to bumper, stepping lightly, just like a ballerina. Beautiful. And, uh... Yeah, what do you think of it? Well, one of the other late revelations in uh, working on the book was that uh, I was kind of pestering an archivist at Warner Brothers uh, throughout the process. And, you know, I was interested, are there outtakes in the in the vault? And he said, there's one that's remained, that survives, and uh, that's not on the album at all. It's called Train, and it's really long, and it's great, but you can tell why it didn't make the cut. 
And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm asking him. And then one day he just let me hear it. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't believe it. I put my headphones on and started listening. And then suddenly halfway through the song, he's singing those lyrics about Cape Cod and Hyannisport and Cambridgeport. These were, the poem was part of the lyrics to Train. Oh. And I just couldn't believe it. And also it was instantly apparent to me that, you know, Morrison had instantly mythologized these places he sings about Cambridgeport like it's some misty, faraway Hobbit village. You know, it was uh, it was just I couldn't believe my ears. Yeah, yeah, and the ballerina is obviously uh, Janet Planet. And that, like, you know, that last line, stepping lightly, just like a ballerina. It seems to me that this was like a collage of lyrics from a bunch of his songs at the time mm-hmm. that he just kind of, for whatever reason cut and pasted together and decided to put on the back of the record sleeve. So why do you think it took so long for the album to become respected? Was it just too far ahead of its time or was it a victim of record business shenanigans? I will say the musicians could not find it in stores <laughs> after it came out. They kept, they told me they would go to New York record stores, wasn't there. Lewis, the producer, you know, kept calling Warner Brothers and saying, where the hell is this thing? Where's the promotion? And the marketing for it that does exist is really tone deaf and bad. I mean, there's one print ad. Well, what did Joe Smith say? You must have asked him. Yeah, sure, Joe. Uh, I think Joe's quote was, no one wanted this thing. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, it wasn't full of radio hits. It was these long, stretched out meditations and uh but the the little marketing that did exist was weird i mean one particular i think radio spot i heard is full of like baseball metaphors like astro weeks eight home runs like that kind of weirdness okay oh because there's eight songs on the album (laughs) right right (laughs) so nobody cared at the record company so you think it's more record business shenanigans i think you, you know um that and I do believe that some things aren't meant to be uh, understood and embraced instantly. I think certain things do take time to percolate and take hold of people's imaginations. I mean, surely there were certainly huge fans of it right off the bat, but um, it it just grew and grew over time. Lester Bang's famous essay about the album comes out 10 years after the release. Yeah, a decade later, right. Yeah. And that's hugely significant, I think, in... Uh, and pushing the myth uh, of the album and slowly growing popularity. Um, so, yeah, it's a whole bunch of reasons. Do you listen to the album differently now after all the thought you've put into it? You know, it's, it's a question I've received a lot. And um, I'll tell you that I, when I finally finished the book, I put on the record, I said, let's see if I ruin my favorite album ever. <laughs> right. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I was just as blown away by it. I wasn't thinking about all the weird details surrounding the making of it. I just was carried away by the beauty of the music. So the music itself still kind of transcends the story, which is incredible. Yeah, I think so. Well, Ryan, what's next for you? Well, as you said up top, I'm in a band called Hallelujah the Hills, and we are recording our seventh record currently. Um, We're working hard on that. And in fact, kind of blurring the two worlds, I did ask uh, John Payne, the Boston flute player who's on Astral Weeks, to come down to the studio one day, and he 
put a beautiful flute part on one of our new songs. That was fun. And, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of freelance work for newspapers and articles, uh, magazines, and just, you know, I'm keeping busy. Good, 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 good. Well, Ryan H. Walsh, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Oh, it's my pleasure, really. Thank you for having me. It was a good conversation. Big round of applause. Big thank you to Ryan H. Walsh. What a great interview. In all deference to Ryan and his hometown love, Boston didn't send any notable acts into the rock and roll stratosphere in the 1960s, which in and of itself is actually very strange. Of course, that does change dramatically in the 1970s, and perhaps the groundwork was being laid then when Van Morrison came to Beantown to help sow the seeds of the fruit to be born later. Almost like the album itself. As we know, Astral Weeks was considered a bit of a dud upon its release. Uh, like the music scene in Boston, perhaps the world needed to warm up to its charms. It did take until 2001 for the album to be certified gold by the RIAA, and it was a full decade before things began to turn with Lester Bangs' personal account of the album's importance. I think it's fair to say the album couldn't have been initially created anywhere else than the old town of Boston. All right, make sure you go grab a copy of Ryan H. Walsh's rich and absorbing book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, wherever you get your fine books. Until next week, uh, this has been Deeper Digs and Rock. Keep up the rockin'. than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic oh, I can now hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too.
Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.